Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, John Schreckengost, talking about his experiences as a veteran of the Vietnam War. We were forced to do something that was so unpopular at such a young age. I'm from a generation where my father and all my uncles were in World War II. Their fathers were in World War I. So I guess coming from that perspective, I was doing what I was supposed to do. John Schreckengost next on His People. It's hard to believe, but the Vietnam War officially began 67 years ago this month. There were more than 58,000 U.S. casualties during the war and 300,000 wounded. On this Veterans Day, our guest is U.S. Army veteran John Schreckengost, who served in Vietnam. He'll discuss some of his war experiences and how he found hope and healing in the years after the war. The interviewer is retired Delaware pastor, Chuck Betters. The interview was recorded a number of years ago. John, why don't you tell us, first of all, a little bit about yourself and who you are, a little bit about your family so that folks can get to know who you are. My name is John Schreckengast. I was in Vietnam in 1969, 1970, served with F Troop 17th Cavalry, and they were attached to the 196th Light Infantry Brigade. I was drafted in June of 69. How old were you? I was 19. I'm married for the second time, which is real typical of Vietnam vets. My wife, Kathy, and I don't have any biological children together. From my first marriage, I have a daughter and a son, and they're in their mid to upper 30s now. And the youngest daughter is Kathy's biological daughter, and she is in her mid-30s. You weren't married during your years in Vietnam? No, I was single. What was your first experience when you were sent to Vietnam? What was it like even getting off the plane? I got there in November. The day I left for Vietnam, I called home, and my mother told me that my grandmother had passed that day. And would I want the Red Cross to bring me home? And I told my mom, I said, listen, there's no way they're going to believe a soldier that's an hour away from flying to Vietnam. His grandmother passed away. So I got to Vietnam. The first thing that you experience is the smell and the heat, even in November. It was unpleasant. It smelled like dung. You just knew that you were in a place that stunk. Probably after a month or so, we all stunk. For the first few days, you're just assigned to a reception area. From there, you're assigned to your permanent duty station. Did you know what that was at the time? No, I didn't know. um, Because of being drafted and my job description, which the job description carried an infantry job description with it, they could have sent me to the infantry. They didn't have to send me to a cavalry unit. 
Tell us a little bit about the assignment that you uh, had in Vietnam. What was your responsibility? Our mission being a cavalry unit was typically just being a moving target. We would go where the intelligence said there was concentration of enemy soldiers, and we'd hope that they'd shoot at us so we could shoot at them. So you were live bait. We were live bait. The toughest part of that for me then was living second to second, not knowing if the next second was going to be your last on earth or not. You're 19 years old at the time. How does a 19-year-old process this? I wish I could remember. (laughs) Uh, I look back at it. I just can't believe that I actually did all the things that I did, nor the men that were with me. Nobody should have to go through it, but unfortunately, we live in a world where wars happen. That war happened. It was very unpopular. After enough time had gone by, people could see that we weren't really making any headway. So you were drafted in 69, so the war would have wound down maybe four or five years later? Really, the war was starting to wind down then. In 1969, they started bringing more people back and not sending as many. So as the war progressed, as the years went by, you had to do the same job with less people. So it became even more dangerous, if you you can imagine that. When you got off the plane, you knew you were going into combat. Yes. Were you frightened? I can say right now that I wasn't frightened then. It wasn't until the first contact with the enemy. That's the adrenaline rush that probably nobody should have to experience. Tell me about that. Well, I was in a way privileged because I was on the platoon leader's vehicle. The platoon leader gets communication from the troop commander, and he also has the ability to talk between the other platoon leaders, and to our platoon. But the new guy always had to drive. He drove the armored personnel carrier or the tank. But with that goes the ability to communicate also and to listen. So I had a headset on. It was actually December 26th, the day after Christmas. We had just moved from our night defensive position to our first part of the mission that we were supposed to accomplish, we would go to a specific area that someone wanted us to go from higher command. We left our night defensive position, and we were ambushed. It wasn't a surprise to anybody because on Christmas night, we could see the enemy campfires all around us. Because there was a ceasefire, we couldn't do anything, but we knew we were in for it the next morning. And that was my first initiation to combat. I think the thing that shocked me the most was uh, hearing over the radio the report after the uh, contact, which lasted probably an hour, that our unit had sustained three KIAs. I guess it really hit me then. This is the real deal here. This is, this is bad stuff. What was the ambush like for you as a 19-year-old? The emotions of a a young man like that, you think you're never going to die, for one thing, that nothing can happen to you. But at the same time, 
I could honestly say I was scared, but I wanted to do what I was trained to do without endangering anyone else. I wanted to do what I was supposed to do. That way, anybody else uh, would be safe. After that initiation of fire, I mean, it doesn't really ever get, quote unquote, easier. I think you just get more used to it. Did you know any of the three KIAs? No, that was my first mission into the field, we called it. How long were you there in Vietnam? I was there from approximately November the 7th or 8th of 69 until October 20th of 1970. That was when they were sending people back. The country was in a position then uh, socially that politicians were really being forced to do what they could to get people out of Vietnam. So what they were doing with folks that were going to rotate back to the United States, they would send you back maybe a couple weeks early. What was the most difficult experience for you in that, we'll call it a year? There isn't just one. After that day, December 26th, we chased the enemy all day. We had spotters in helicopters watching enemy movement, and we would go towards whatever direction they suggested we go. So we did that all day long. I mean, the ambush happened at maybe 7 o'clock in the morning, and we didn't pull into a night defensive position till about 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. So it was just a day, I mean, we saw helicopters crash, and then the next one happened when I received my Purple Heart. Our vehicle was attacked by rocket-propelled grenades. I was still on the command track, platoon leader's track, but at that time, I was a machine gunner. So I was on the right rear side of the armored personnel carrier, and the RPG came from the left front, maybe 300 yards or so, and maybe, maybe less, and it impacted right underneath our platoon leader. He was sitting on the left front of the vehicle. And it blew him off of the vehicle. And everybody but the medic was wounded. But the platoon leader was the worst. When I went out, we were receiving small arms fire. They shot another rocket-propelled grenade at the vehicle and hit it. And it started to burn. So I went out to the platoon leader because he was out in the open. The bullets were hitting all around. He'd only been in country maybe two months. So he was fairly new. And when I went to help him, I looked down and you could see right down to the bone in his leg. I could tell that he was probably close to being in shock. And he asked me, how bad was it? And I didn't want to tell him. I just told him, it's going to be okay. It's not that bad. And we got him to a more secure area. They dusted him off, which that was taking him to the medical facility. And I didn't see him for 40 plus years until one Saturday evening. I had just gotten in touch with a few of the other guys. It had been 40 years since I'd talked to any of them. I was just at the computer and I typed his name in, even though his last name was a fairly common name. He always went by his middle initial as as part of his name. And I knew where approximately he was from. So I looked it up. At the time, I was able to get his phone number. So I called him, 
I told him who I was, asked him if he'd been in F Troop, and he said he had been. And I told him why I was calling, that all these years, I wondered if he had lost his leg, if he had passed. And I said, so, what's your story? And he said, I can play 18 holes of golf and walk the whole course. So you had something to do with that. And then the following year, we went to a reunion, and he came. So we were able to uh, reunite and talk about the things that happened, and, and that's the beauty of reunions. You were given a Purple Heart for that action that day? Yeah, I received a wound that day. When you came home from Vietnam, if I have the timing correct, as a nation, we were beginning to phase out of the war, but the war was still very unpopular, and there was great political divide in the nation. As a soldier returning home, how were you treated when you came home? I've heard stories about guys that, you know, have been spat upon, cussed at. That didn't necessarily happen to me. However, on the plane coming back, in each of the airports, you could see the looks, and you can tell. I was in Atlanta recently, and there are many soldiers that are either going somewhere or, or coming from somewhere. I was able to sit there and watch what appeared to me to be veterans would go up to the soldiers, strangers, and thank them for their service. It was commonplace to watch that happen. And it seems as though the whole temperature toward the military, at least in our generation now, has changed. And I'm wondering how that makes a Vietnam veteran feel when he sees that kind of good treatment compared to what he received when he came home from Vietnam. Speaking for myself, I'm thankful that people do that now. I wish that they had done it for us. And I think I can speak for a lot of other guys that are Vietnam vets that you can have all the parades now that you want. Uh, there's still that slap in the face. It's not that I hold a grudge about that. It's just that's the way it was. That's the way it is. I think a lot of very nice people have tried to make amends for that. And to some degree, I think they have. But it's sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, I'm so glad that folks recognize the sacrifice. At the same time, like I said, it's a little hard. You kind of wish you had had the same thing. But I think most Vietnam vets, because of the war, because of the way we had to fight the war, because of the way... The society was, if they had had a parade, we probably wouldn't even have gone to it. Why do you say that? We were just fed up. Speaking for myself again, we were forced to do something that was so unpopular at such a young age. I'm from a generation where my father and all my uncles were in World War II. Their fathers were in World War I. So I guess coming from that perspective, I was doing what I was supposed to do. So even though it was unpopular, I didn't want to do it, 
but I did it because of the history of the family and the love for country. But it was almost in my mind that we were betrayed. Well, so many issues have surfaced over the years. What do you see as some of the common ills that Vietnam vets are facing? The amount of stress that we, especially combat veterans, operate from. Most people, their stress level might be at the middle of their stomach, let's say, if you want to use that for a gauge. But for Vietnam vets, combat vets, the uh, stress level might be up closer to your chin. Would you call that PTSD? I would. In fact, if I talk too much about the things that happen, I mean, that's only four days out of 300 and some. And not all those days were in the field, but a good portion of them were in the field. Something was always happening. That's part of PTSD. I don't remember all of them. And some of the details that I can remember now are because I've gone to reunions and other people that were there at the same time that saw the same thing might have a detail that I forgot. What are some of the other stresses that you see when you come home? What else is there? Impatience. I guess that's all part of the stress level. Typically, one of the symptoms is chronic depression. And with that comes some irritability. And because your stress level is so high, when something irritates you, you go from zero to mad in no time. What are some of the other emotions that you struggle with? Lack of emotion. It's as though your heart is numb. I'm not saying that I don't have emotion. As I get older, I'm starting to get in touch more with it. But for a long time, if somebody said, hey, somebody's dying of cancer, I'm thinking, I saw a bunch of guys die in Vietnam, so it's really nothing new. You mentioned earlier that you have been married twice. Yes. I can't imagine how you build a marriage with a lack of emotion. How did that affect your first marriage? Well, actually, my ex-wife always said that I had a Jekyll Hyde personality. I could be extremely loving, caring, but I could go the other way, too. I think the emotional numbness might come across as not caring. And after a certain amount of time, after the honeymoon is over, and you get into the day-to-day life, I know that a lot of people that haven't even been in combat, their marriage becomes routine. For us, it was particularly difficult because we both worked. But I worked one part of the day, and she worked the total opposite part of the day. So in reality, things were okay on the weekend, unless something, you know, came up, something happened, and then I might go off. At the time, I used alcohol to self-medicate. So when you're impaired, so to speak, you're less inhibited, and you're more likely to say some things that you probably should keep to yourself. Is that still true of you? Not so much. Not so much. I do get angry, but because of the treatment I've had in the last five or six years, I know where it's coming from. I'm able to bite my lip. I'm able to step back, take some time to think about what's going on. But the most important thing is just to keep my mouth shut and try to get it out because it's no good keeping it in. But it has to come out slowly. 
you mentioned you have received treatment in the past five years. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was able to go to a vet center. When you walk into that place, there are people there that are trained to take care of veterans and in particular, combat veterans. It's called the Vet Center. And they're all over the country? They're all over the country. What are some of the other common themes that you see today of struggles that Vietnam veterans are having? Why are so many of our Vietnam veterans homeless and jobless? And what happened to these people that we now have an epidemic? My personal opinion is simply because when we came back, We were just categorized baby killers on and on. I know of a fella that wanted to go to work at an auto plant in Kentucky. When he applied for the job, they flat out told him, we are not hiring Vietnam veterans. So I think the stigma has a lot to do with it. And I think they don't have anything to put their faith and trust in. You were talking about homeless people. They don't have anybody to trust. They may have some people that want to help them, but they aren't going to trust them. Trust is a big issue with me. The one that I can really only trust is God. That's why when I read his words, I know that that can be believed and I can rely on that. There was a turning point for you in your life that is related to your faith. You want to talk a little bit about that? It was the mid-90s. It seemed that our company was in jeopardy of closing, so I was going to lose my job. And it was at the same time that my ex-wife said she wanted to leave. She hadn't said she wanted to divorce, but I knew what her intentions were. So as that all unfolded, I became more and more depressed, and I decided to take my own life. So I got a bottle of pills tranquilizers and some alcohol and got a motel room and figured I'm going to check out. But I woke up the next day. You took the pills? I took the pills. I drank the alcohol and I woke up the next day. I made it home and I had to go to a facility. I guess it probably was a suicide watch. And the very next weekend, I had to stay there a week. But on that weekend, I was allowed to go home for, I think, the whole weekend. And my next oldest brother was an elder in a Presbyterian church. And he's always been my sidekick from childhood. So he drove from western Pennsylvania to Delaware to speak with me. And he sat me down on the front step of our house. And he looked at me and said, you need Jesus in your life. So that's all he said. Uh, I mean, he didn't go into any particular theological reason or anything like that. He just told me I needed Jesus. So it was in the pew of Glasgow Church one Sunday morning that I asked the Lord to forgive me and asked him into my heart. And that's what keeps me. That gives me the ability, he says, when I'm weak, meaning me, he is strong. So that's how I live my life. This is not just religion for you. No. You want to explain the difference between religion and what you're describing here as what seems to me to be a relationship with Jesus Christ? 
to me, religion is a superficial, non-committed belief. It's on the surface. It's not to the heart, whereas belief comes from the heart. And on a day-to-day basis, you have to consider your relationship with Christ. That's why I say that's the only one I can trust. He's the only one that has never failed you. Never. And will never forsake you. I want you to take a minute or so, a couple of minutes, and I want you to talk to the guy who is maybe listening to this and saying, yeah, right, John, I'm glad it worked out for you, but you don't understand what I'm going through. And maybe that vet who is absolutely hopeless right now. What would you say to this man? Help is available, not only through the vet centers, but through the Lord. There probably are a number of people out there that are going to say, yeah, that works for him. He, you know, he didn't see what I saw, but I have seen it. I've lived it. And I was messed up for a long time and still messed up to a degree. But there is hope in getting help. It doesn't cost anything. If you can get there, you can get to a vet center. They'll help you. You can walk into a VA. They'll help you. But when it comes to trust, you're not going to be able to trust any of them, but you will be able to trust the Lord. That comes from my heart. That's the truth in my life. You just can't give up. You've got to search people that have had similar experiences that have been maybe where you're at right now, but they're a little bit farther ahead. They can help you. It's veterans helping veterans. That camaraderie will never go away. The guys I served with, they're more than brothers. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, U.S. Army Vietnam veteran John Schreckengost. The interviewer was retired Delaware pastor Chuck Betters. For more information, go to Mark Inc. Ministries at markinc.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at the same time for another edition of His People.